1: Welcome to New Books in History. I'm Christine Lamberson from Angelo State University, and today I'll be interviewing Cam Scribner, who's a professor in the College of Education at the University of Maryland, College Park. And I'm interviewing him today about his new book called The Fight for Local Control Schools, Suburbs, and American Democracy, that's out with Cornell Prest. Thanks for joining me, Cam.
0: Thanks, Christine.
1: So let's just start. I was wondering if you might start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you got interested in schools, how you got interested in being a historian and a professor of education.
0: So I grew up in northern New Jersey, and uh, I actually had a, a, when I was a freshman in high school, had a very colorful uh, history teacher named David Emma, who would draw perfect maps freehand of Europe and other things. He would sort of pull dates out of his back pocket and tell you what happened in obscure years. I was already interested in history, but he really turned me on to teaching. And so really, since I was 14 or 15, I was, I was interested in being a history teacher. Um, and so I went to a college in Philadelphia at Haverford College. I was a joint history and education person. I was already sort of interested in the history of education. Uh, I taught high school history for four years, and then I went back uh, to the University of Wisconsin at Madison for my for my graduate work. And while I was there, I got a joint PhD, both in American history and educational policy. And so, Wisconsin has a long tradition of. of Broad sort of inquiry in the history of education, and so it was a very good experience for me. Uh, I sort of dipped my toe in both both worlds of educational policy and history. And in the book, you'll notice a lot of the research comes out of Wisconsin. That that institution and that state generally uh, was very sort of conducive to my own research, my own growth as as a historian.
1: Mm -hmm. And so how did you become interested in this question of local control and rural suburban lines and rural schools in particular?
0: Um, by accident, actually, or maybe by serendipity. Um, I, I was at the Wisconsin Historical Society. I actually went into grad school thinking I'd be studying the left, you know, radical socialists, communists, etc. Um, and I, I stumbled across a, a censorship campaign up in northern Wisconsin in Eagle River, this little vacation town, an old logging town. And when I started looking, this was in the 1960s, when I started looking at them banning books and, you know, being angry about things, I kind of assumed in a very condescending. Ascending way that these were hicks. Like these were rural people who didn't know any better. And of course they're all Bible thumpers. And I had assumed that they were the ones banning these books. Only gradually did I sort of discover that I was I was dead wrong about that. That actually the book banners in this tiny little town were all Chicago transplants. They'd all just moved there in the last ten years. Um they were sort of the new right, the grassroots right that we're, of course, still seeing the the flowering of right now. And that me being wrong, that mistake actually sort of led me to the question of the book, which is What is the relationship between suburban conservatives that there's been lots of historical study of and rural conservatives where there's been some historical study of them, not as much. But these groups never sort of – the lines never cross, right? No historians that I know of have really looked at the boundary between suburban and rural areas. And in case after case, uh, I just kept finding when you look at education, you have a a lot of overlap and and very sort of important overlaps when it comes to educational law and educational politics. Um, And we might get here later in the conversation, but I would say actually just generally when you look at American politics, um, I don't go into other things outside of education, but I think you could easily apply the lessons of my book to to broader political development in this country over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, so tell me a little bit about this story, just kind of thinking about your book holistically. You're interested in these battles over the local control of school districts. You're interested in how that relates to larger questions of democracy, of politics, mm-hmm. of the conservative movement, as you just sort of hinted. So if you could just kind of tell me a little bit about those kinds of big big picture stuff, and then I want to dive into some of the nitty-gritty, some of the stories that you... Um, uncover from Wisconsin. But what's at stake in these local control battles? What is happening here?
0: Yeah, so I'm gonna give like a two part answer to that question. One, I think it's worth pointing out that the reason my book works is that education reform in our country moves at two very different speeds, where on the one hand, since the 1960s, education reform has moved at light speed. We've seen a, a very fast rise of state control of schools and ultimately federal control of schools now with Common Core, No Child Left Behind, etc. That's only happened in the last 50 years, um, which, of course, as historians, we know that's, that's nothing, right? Very rapid growth of, of more oversight, more funding, more testing, teachers unions, I mean, all these different changes, at the same time, people don't realize that up until the 1960s, uh, you still have one-room schoolhouses, thousands of them operating, not just in Wisconsin, but in states around the country. Um, usually we think of the one-room schoolhouse as, you know, Little House on the Prairie. You know, it's the 19th century, but actually it's, it's alive and well through most of the 20th century. Um, and the sort of the crux of the book is that these two different speeds overlap. That is to say you've got one-room schoolhouses lingering on into the 60s. Just as federal courts are ordering desegregation, just as the state and federal government is trying to exert more control over schools. And so my argument is that conservatives find a useful past in these schools. Um, even if they themselves didn't go to one room schools, they're moving into suburban communities that had one room schools or had had them, you know, 10 years before that. And so they start arguing that the persistence of one-room schools and the persistence of an older tradition of local control, an older tradition of community participation, that gives them some legal right or political right to not have government oversight or not have forced busing or whatever other sort of liberal uh, reform they oppose. Um, And so that notion of sort of the old and the new combining in in this very sort of uh, fertile ground, right? This, This. very particular geography on the outskirts of the suburbs, right, where they sort of blend in with rural areas. That's one of the big arguments that I would make in this book. Um, The other reason I think it's important is that, again, I actually approach this somewhat from the left. I don't consider myself uh, a conservative on, on many issues. But I'm actually quite sympathetic with the people that I write write about. Uh, as someone on the left, I, I believe in community. I believe in localism. Uh, I'm also suspicious in many ways of of big government uh, and of top-down control. And so, while I don't agree with them on every point, I, you know, clearly I'm not always in favor of banning books uh, or, or you know fighting taxes or whatever else. Uh, the sentiment that they're expressing, I don't think, is wrong. Uh, these conservatives who say that they're having local power wrested away from them. Yeah, they're right. They are having local power wrested away from them. They don't always want to exercise that power for for good reasons or for good ends. But I I think we should be suspicious of those organizations or groups that want to take it away from them. You know, why why are state educational boards exercising this power? Why are teachers unions exercising this power? I'm not sure that we can take for granted that they are more noble or more disinterested or more objective in their exercise of power. So um, the opening epigraph of the book... Is actually taken from Arrestus Brownson, who was a Catholic opponent of common school reform back in the 1830s and 40s. Um, And obviously, that's not even the era I'm looking at, but the sentiment I like. Uh, Brownson writes, «Government is not in this country and cannot be the educator of the people. In education, we must rely mainly on the voluntary system. If this be an evil, it's an evil inseparable from our form of government.» Um, and so basically, I mean, this is oversimplifying things, but the notion that we need to be committed to local democracy warts and all. The notion that local democracy perpetuates terrible injustices, racial uh, stratification, class stratification. Nevertheless, it, it's worth standing by it. It's worth defending it or at least thinking very hard about why we're we're sort of relegating it to the past or why we're abandoning it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I've sort of two related maybe questions. Um, One is to think a little bit about um, what is it that these folks who are fighting for local control, what do they like about this kind of the rural one-room school Mm -hmm. um, model? Or perhaps alternatively, we could think about this question as wondering what is it that's at stake for these for them in these battles. Is this a principled battle of we want local control as opposed to state or federal control, which, as you mentioned in your book, is very different than a state's rights argument, but in some ways has some sort of, you know, principle? Or is this, as historians of an earlier period would say, is states rights really about race? You know, is this really a story that's about something else, and they're arguing for local control because they want certain people out or they want certain books out or they want whatever?
0: to be to be clear about my own position, uh, I think a lot of historians would agree with you that ultimately this is all about racism or it's all about protecting wealth. I mean, it's cynical. it's I mean it's really for all the wrong reasons. Um, I don't discount that at all. i I agree with that to a large degree. Um, What I would take exception to, though, is the notion that you can then paint anyone defending local control with that brush, that they're all racists. They're all just privileged or whatever it might be. I disagree with that. And I would say that you can have people adopting a good cause for the wrong reasons. Um, And – I don't know where that leaves us exactly, but my impression is that you have a lot of, especially rural people and small town people, who are very committed to their local schools and very rightly worry that if the school should be consolidated, if they should be taken out of local hands, if teachers are given more power, that that's going to jeopardize traditions of community that are actually very valuable to them. Uh, they're going to lose their sense of community. They're going to lose some sense of, of uh, democratic participation. Um, whether that is what's actually motivating these suburbanites, you know, in suburban Detroit or or Newark or somewhere. No, it's probably not. But even there, that's why this is so hard. It's hard to disentangle the very virtuous notions of local participation. No one's going to object to that. But when it's used then to perpetuate things that I think many liberals and people on the left object to, like racism, obviously, they will start to object to it. So it's this sort of moral and political arithmetic. Uh, you know, how do you balance that? How do you want to sort of even out those two, those two impulses? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, interesting. So can you tell me a, just a couple of examples, maybe pick one of your favorite um, battles that's taking place in Wisconsin or, or somewhere else, one of your favorite kind of um, incidents or one of the ones that was particularly interesting to research and tell us a little bit about what this looks like on the ground?
0: Sure. Um... So to take Wisconsin as an example, uh, in Wisconsin, you have the, – the state of Wisconsin is trying to consolidate one-room schoolhouses, which they see as outdated, outmoded. They can't provide comprehensive education. They can't uh, – they're often unequally funded one teacher supervising 30 kids. I mean, it's just not uh, a modern form of education. And already by the 1930s, the state of Wisconsin and states around the country are really pushing to close these places. They're denying them tax breaks. They're they're, they're sort of using procedural mechanisms to, to consolidate them. And little towns are fighting tooth and nail. They're not going to give them up. You know, they're, they're, they're raising hell. They have, usually are being overrepresented in state houses because of uh, rural districting. And so rural representatives are also stalling, which is why the, these consolidation battles play out really through the 50s and 60s in, in many states. Um, and so in Wisconsin, you've got this going on. And it's finally in 1959 that the state of Wisconsin manages to force, you know, the last of its few thousand one-room schools to close. Of course, by this time, you also have urban civil rights groups in the South, you know, in court fighting for desegregation, but already in the North as well. They're pointing out that there are ghetto schools in Milwaukee, there are ghetto schools in Chicago. Um, Northern districts are not sort of guilt-free when it comes to, to racial school assignments. And so as you have civil rights groups and other liberal groups in the North pushing for school desegregation Uh, conveniently, cynically, you have suburbanites who suddenly turn around and and remember the one-room schoolhouse. And so you have these very interesting little incidents of uh, conservative state representatives from places like Brookfield um, or or Whitefish Bay, places right around Milwaukee, uh, who start visiting one-room schoolhouses out in the countryside. They visit visit Amish schools out in the countryside. um, And they use these as political props to fight against bussing. and so ultimately milwaukee does have a pretty comprehensive bussing plan mostly the conti plan in the mid 1970s which they then back away from um and they can't they can't enforce it in court and ultimately, they can't keep uh, pushing, bussing the legislature because you have this suburban uh, backlash against it. Milwaukee still has a voluntary program, the, the 220 program, where kids from Milwaukee can get bussed out into the suburbs. Mostly it's, it's out. I don't think there are any kids get bussed in. Um, but it's it's a Band-Aid, right? If you look at Milwaukee even right now, obviously this is sort of in the news right now with rioting in Milwaukee, uh, it remains hyper segregated. The Milwaukee public schools are like 95 percent black. They're overwhelmingly uh, poor students. And that imaginary line, which is very stark, right? You can stand at the edge of Milwaukee and look in one direction and see one reality, look in the other direction and see a very different reality. Uh, Those imaginary lines only uh, get sort of reified or get enshrined uh, because you have suburbanites invoking one-room schoolhouses. Um, the, The famous case that I cite is Milliken v. Bradley. This is a case that many historians know about out of Detroit. Where uh, Detroit also tries to push forward this metropolitan busing program. And it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, which has been moving to the right, because by this point, Nixon has appointed four new justices. Clearly, it's a more conservative court than it had been when Brown was issued uh, 20 years earlier. Uh, And then in 1974, you've got Earl Warren writing the the majority, or um, sorry, Warren Berger writing the majority opinion. Um, And he is citing one-room schoolhouses and saying there's a long tradition in this country of local control, and therefore the state, uh, in this case, is not under obligation to bus kids across district lines. Um, With one stroke of the pen, he basically invents what had already been – he's right. I mean, there was a tradition of local control. There had been no legal right to local control before that, right? If you look at it, states had very easily consolidated thousands of one-room schools, and it was sort of a shut case – until suddenly suburbanites are the ones raising the issue of local control. So that, I think, is the most cut-and-dry example that I can give. I I can also talk about funding. I can talk about curriculum. I can talk about teachers' unions. um, But that's the one case where I really can show you in black and white how the one-room schoolhouse remains to this day a very important legal symbol of of local control of education and ultimately, I would say, of educational inequality.
1: Mm -hmm can you talk a little bit about this move kind of because you're you you have these sorts of you know we have these three types of geographic regions right we have rural suburban and urban and right mm-hmm. and we often think about these school battles as being between especially when we think about race and busing and and the example you just talked about as well between uh, the suburban and the urban right we think of that as the site and you're really by talking about the one-room school, you're talking about how important it is to keep the rural in this picture. And can you talk a little bit about that? First of all, that move, how that happens. And, And second of all, sort of whether this is just suburbanite, what we might think of almost as being kind of a a type of nostalgia history, right? Where you have the kind of, these suburbanites who didn't go to one-room schools, who have no interest in one-room schools, but are looking to them to fight their own battle? Or is there a closer connection that we can see where where the actual people living in rural areas who went to one-room schools are are fitting in somewhere?
0: Yeah, they're both happening. Uh, So I'll I'll take your second question first. Um, There's a lot of nostalgia going on. Uh, Jonathan Zimmerman has an excellent book called Small Wonder, where he looks at sort the cultural uh, afterglow, you might say, of the one-room schoolhouse and how almost as soon as they're closed in the 1950s and 60s, people immediately start romanticizing them. If you go to any antique store, you'll see old school desks from one-room schoolhouses. Oh, they're so cute. Um, The point that he makes, and I would agree with him, is that we need to look at one-room schoolhouses for what they actually were right? You have underprepared teachers. You have schools that are quite often falling down. They're unsafe. They're drafty. There are stories of kids coming in in the morning and chipping the ice off the water bucket, right? I mean, these are not safe or good places to learn. And so people that have images of sort of a nostalgic rural past are, are, are ignoring the fact that lots of kids were illiterate. You know, lots of kids were beaten in these schools until they, they wet themselves or vomited. I mean, it's not a pretty sight. That being said, again, uh, Without being nostalgic, someone once accused me of nostalgia, and I took great umbrage at that. Without being nostalgic, I would say that there are very vital lessons from the one schoolhouse that we have forgotten at our peril, right? The lessons of intimacy and smallness and community buy-in and parental involvement. Um, I often think, you know, today, if you look at education reform – uh, for the last 20 years, the Gates Foundation has been pushing small schools, schools within schools, breaking up these big anonymous high schools so you can have more buy-in. Um, the high school in the town that I just moved from, Delaware, Ohio, they also had recently organized into what they call houses where within the high school there are different sort of glorified homerooms, basically, where kids can know each other across grade levels. They can know their teachers better. Um, so there's this sudden sort of mem- uh, remembrance in educational policy that small is good, small is has its benefits. You could forgive rural communities for kind of saying, what the hell? Like we've been saying that for over a century now and you're still pushing us to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so I guess what I would say is, yes, there is nostalgia. Yes, it's put to cynical ends. But again, it's important to sort of scrape that away and recognize the value of localism, the value of smallness. Um, and so while you know, people have asked me would I send my own kids to one-room schools, and I, I really have to think about that hard because on the one hand, again, I don't glorify them. And I know that they'd be giving up a lot in going to places like that. On the other hand, I, I see the value in them, right? And, and I think that sort of uh, ambivalence or that hesitation is what I would hope to sort of spark in my readers. That is to say, on the one hand, if, if, you're a, if you think local control is a conservative ploy to perpetuate racism – fine, you might end the book thinking that too. But I would hope that you would at least pause for a moment and say, well, you know, what, what valid points do these people have to make? Is there any good side to localism, etc.? cetera? Um, remind me of your first question.
1: Uh, my other question was where, uh, it, it, and we're thinking about, the city, the suburban, the local – or sorry, the rural. Where do the actual rural people fit into the story? Are the suburbanites just like, oh, let's use this image or, or where are they?
0: So there, there's a physical side to my book, which I have to give credit. When I was at Wisconsin, I worked a little bit with Bill Cronin, who's a famous environmental historian, um, I, I can't say that environmental history has informed the book directly. I mean, there's no environmental history in it. But the notion of physical space and sort of housing development and other things really inform the book a lot. Um, and I, you know, I, I use the word agronomics once or twice in here because when you look physically at the towns that I study in this book in Wisconsin and elsewhere – um, they're what today we would call exurbs. That is to say, they're not inner ring suburbs where people are hopping on the streetcar to commute into the inner city. These are farther out. People are driving there. Uh, a lot of the times, they're actually old vacation towns where people like it so much they actually move there permanently. And so, in most cases, uh, there are rural people in these areas, or there had been very recently. You know, ta- uh, farms are getting subdivided, new houses are popping up, but these are still small towns. Um, And it's in those places that you really start to get suburbanites both clashing with farmers, right? They actually don't want the school falling down. They don't want teachers that have no training. Uh, So they want more funding. They want better schools. But as the state starts to exert more control over them, they also then pivot. Um, And they say, we're with the farmers. We want localism. We want the school board making these decisions and not the teachers, whatever it might be. And so in these towns, in these exurban towns way out on the fringe of suburbia, right where suburbia meets rural areas, that's where the story starts. And then it sort of bleeds in, which is to say other suburban communities take up the cry. They take up arms. They, they, they use these cases that are popping up really in places that you've never heard of and use them for their own advantage. So if there's a book banning incident in Eagle River, Wisconsin, you'll then have suburbanites right around Milwaukee refer to that and say, what about Eagle River? What about there are places like Twin Lakes? I mean, these are small towns that people even today have not heard of, but they they have an outsized role in educational law, basically is my argument. Um, and a lot of larger suburbs and a lot of cities, because it's so big and because they're sort of more at stake, you actually have a lot more negotiation going on, right? If you've got a big city teacher union trying to strike, there are going to be mediators. There are going to be different political interests that come together and sort of work out a deal. When you look at these small towns where it's the union against the town, there's no mediation, right? It's going all the way to court and they're going to – often they go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court because neither side is going to back down. And so that in and of itself sort of accounts for uh, what I would say is a very overlooked aspect of American history, rural areas, which are sort of overrepresented in a lot of these political fights.
1: Mm -hmm. So I have another question about geography since we're on uh, the space question, Um, which – Most most directly is essentially the why Wisconsin question, Um, but I'm also thinking, and I'm curious. um, My father went to a one room school uh, through Mm -hmm. eighth grade. Uh, He grew up in Nebraska, which is a much more rural place than Wisconsin, right? Um, And he uh, he's probably uh, when would he have stopped? He would have stopped going to that one room school probably in the early seventies, maybe even. Um, So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about. Uh, about why Wisconsin or how Wisconsin might compare to other places. Another part of your book is you talk a little bit about the differences with the South, which maybe we yeah. can save that for a separate question, but just kind of how that, that serves as representative, but also the differences.
0: Sure. I can get into the South maybe in my answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you think about uh, spatial development in schools or in housing or in anything else. Uh, if you've ever driven around new England or, or, you know, the mid Atlantic States, you've got all these tiny little towns, you know, tucked into valleys, tucked on little mountaintops, and they're not, they're not very big. Um, and each of them typically in the old days, of course, would actually have multiple school districts within them. Even little towns would have each one room schoolhouse would have their own school board, would have the local neighborhood, determining education. Um, that's the sort of tradition that American schools are drawing from. And again, up through the 20th century, they consolidate a little bit. That is to say, little towns in Vermont or, you know, New Jersey or Pennsylvania, they might go from having two separate one-room schools to having two separate one-room schools that with one of them having, you know, grades one through five and the other ones having six through high school, but they still have these tiny little buildings. And only very gradually do they, they build more modern structures or have larger areas that they draw from. Uh, that process goes at different speeds in different areas of the country. And so in New England and other places, one-room schools are already kind of fading out by the 1940s, and they're definitely gone by the 50s. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan – uh Ohio to some degree, much of the sort of mid-Atlantic going through the upper Midwest, they're alive and well through the 1950s. And it's really not till the 60s that they start to fade out. Uh, It's the Great Plains, again, as you point out, because they're the most rural, perhaps, area of the country that really hold on. And I actually, when I was doing my research, I have a whole chart of the number of one-room schools in every state. And, yeah, you look at Nebraska, you look at North and South Dakota, and they are diehards. It's up through the mid-70s, and they still have hundreds and hundreds of these buildings operating. Um, And I have a friend, actually, who teaches right now in rural South Dakota. And he, of course, he's very interested in this because he points out that his local community still, this is a live issue, right? I mean, these these schools, even the bigger ones, are still under threat of consolidation because they're not big enough. But what are you going to do? I mean, there's only so many kids. These these towns are clinging uh, like mad to their schools because there's so much identity woven up in them. Sports rivalries, memories of teachers, memories of buildings, et cetera. Um, And actually, I would point out that even, you know, in my area of Ohio that I just moved from, schools there have been consolidated for 75 years now. So it's not like this is a hot issue in some respects. But the district just north of Delaware, where I lived, uh, is one of these big rural districts. It's actually the largest district geographically in the state. Even now, there are people in that district who resent it, who do not like busing their kids half an hour to the high school, which is two towns over, um, who don't like the fact that their old high school, which has been turned into an elementary school, is basically being condemned because it's too old and has not been kept up. And even now, you still see the sort of afterglow or the, the sort of uh, rearguard <laughs> actions of these consolidation fights. So I would not say that this is ancient history in many small towns.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I would imagine, I, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned that example, but I would imagine, particularly in those great plain states, that distance has to, you yeah. know, fit, enter into that, especially yeah. if you're looking at people who are actually working on farms, who, you know, don't want to have their kids spending too much of their day riding on buses to try and get to school.
0: Yep. But and again, I'm quite sympathetic with those people. I right? mean, it's, it's a hard choice to make.
1: Yeah, even where I live in Texas, I mean, I live in a, within the the definitions that you uh, lay out, I suppose, an urban area. I mean, there's yep. like 100,000 people, but there are lots of kids who go to the university who grew up in towns that are teeny tiny and are very far away from yep. other teeny tiny towns. Yeah. Um, Okay. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about the South. So how is this, you know, a lot of, as you mentioned in your book, you know, Matt Lasseter's book about um, the, the suburbs and the fights about busing in the Sun Belt throughout the South, you know, that's where a lot of the attention of historians have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, we're interested in speaking to a larger audience, of course, but, um, you know, we often think about the South as the place where some of these battles have played out, particularly because of the overwhelming influence of race in um, in or overwhelming presence of race, I should say, in school battles. So how does talking about Wisconsin, talking about, um, you know, Michigan, talking about these other areas... Mm-hmm. Reinform or revise our understanding of, of what's going on in the South, what's going on nationally?
0: Yeah, so the South, of course, is a weird place in any number of ways. Uh, but when it comes to educational policy, it's especially weird because uh, the South did not have public education before the Civil War. Um, they, they didn't want anyone well-educated, much, certainly not slaves or freedmen, but also not even poor whites. And so public schools are sort of forced upon the South at bayonet point. It's required that Southern constitutions incorporate provisions for public education after the Civil War as a, as a condition of readmission into the Union. Um, because of that, the South is a latecomer to public schools. They, they don't fund them very well. But because they are, are adamant that they have racially separate schools, they're in this weird position where they actually need big school districts in order to have enough money. Even to have bad black schools, you need to have basically countywide districts to raise enough revenue and to have enough students to separate them. So the black students can go to one school and the white students can go to another school. Because of that, most southern states, uh, Texas is an exception, but most southern states have countywide districts already by the 1920s. Um, And so they're actually some of the first ones to close down their one-room schools, not for black students who often are going to tar paper shacks up through the 50s and 60s, but at least for white students. And to to fold them into these much bigger uh, governance structures, these countywide districts, it's because of that particularity, the countywide district system, that Matt Lasseter argues, uh, to rehash his argument quickly, that um, in the South, after Brown v. Board of Education, when Southern districts have to desegregate, it suddenly comes back to bite them. Before, they had these huge districts where they could have enough kids to separate, but now they're being ordered to combine them. And unfortunately for them, they actually have enough black students and white students to meaningfully integrate them. Um, And so Laster argues that when you have rural areas in the South where clearly you only have one school, it's going to be a mixed school, um, those areas are the ones that really push for massive resistance. They just say, hell no, we're not going to desegregate at all. Laster argues that suburban communities in Charlotte and Richmond and places, Atlanta, places like that. Suburbanites are actually willing to tolerate a little bit of integration, uh, and are, don't want this sort of overt racism. They want a more colorblind conservatism. And so he argues that it's metropolitan areas in the South that forge a new kind of more palatable conservatism, which is still racist and still sort of, uh, segregate students, but does it in ways that aren't overtly racist. Um, That's true. I don't disagree with him at all. My, I guess, argument with Lassiter, a slight argument, would be that when you try to apply that to northern cities that are not countywide districts, the the sort of uh, resistance to school desegregation doesn't turn on the same mechanisms that it does in the south. Quite the opposite. It turns on uh, solidifying district lines. It's also not overtly racist. People say, no, 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 I'm not against black kids. I'm just for local control. Um, And so the South, uh, of course, is important. But the irony is that actually by the 1970s, Southern districts are more integrated than Northern districts are, right? Because they can have busing within district lines and achieve meaningful desegregation. Um, Only really recently in the last 10 years, and this is depressing for me to say, but you actually see Southern districts now becoming more like Northern districts, a lot of times historians of the 70s and 80s talk about the southernization of America. Actually, you're seeing the northernization of the South right now, where these big countywide districts uh, in Wake County, in, in Charlotte-Mecklenburg County, you're starting to see wealthier, whiter areas actually secede from the countywide school district and form their own little school district, which then, of course, perpetuates racial segregation based on housing and income. Um, and so southern cities are actually starting to look more like northern cities, and that's not a good thing. Um yeah. So I, I guess Lasker remains uh, very important. It's an excellent book. It's a great argument. I think my book uh, sort of applies a finer degree of analysis to more of the country. When we talk about most of the country, we're not talking about countywide school districts.
1: Could you talk a little bit about kind of how this moves into conservatism, kind of looking towards the president, looking towards um, things like the tax revolt, which is is, of course, another big battle along with busing that's happening yeah. in, the, in the 1970s, how that might reinform our thinking about um, that larger political struggle uh, is my first question. And then I want to talk a little bit about kind of thinking about the present.
0: So, okay. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to preempt your next question, but I'll, I'll say the book, if you read it carefully, you'll notice it actually is divided in two parts. The first part is what we've talked about so far, which is to say, starting with Brown v. Board of Education, you have liberals pushing for more professionalism in education, more racial desegregation, better funding, more top-down control and in state intervention, and you have conservatives saying, "No, no, no, local control. We're not going to do this," and they win, right? They, they in Milliken v. Bradley, they they overturn busing. In San Antonio v. Rodriguez, they overturn uh, equalized tax systems. And so you might say that's the first half of the book. Conservatives win. Local control thwarts liberal ambitions to equality. Fine. The problem is, and the reason that ultimately I think my book's really an indictment of conservatives, uh, who in many ways I support, is that almost as soon as they do that, conservatives get outflanked because in other areas, particularly with teachers' unions – They win local control in principle while actually losing it in practice. That is to say, courts agree that teachers' unions cannot trump local school board decisions. But when they get taken to court, many courts agree that teachers' unions do have a right to exist and do have a right to collective bargaining which means that teachers unions sort of wheedle their way in and start outflanking local school boards, where suddenly you have a little town school board up against a statewide union who's striking or you know bringing in organizers or whatever it might be. When that happens, you start to see conservatives not find local control as useful. Because suddenly it's local communities against statewide organizations, statewide interest groups. And so when that happens, conservatives start to sort of jump up to the state themselves. And they themselves want to marshal state power against teachers unions or against other liberal civil rights groups. That will eventually even happen at the federal level where conservatives start embracing federal federal control of education, particularly when it comes to standards. If you think about No Child Left Behind, for instance, the notion of accountability and the notion of of sort of uh, turning off funding if, if schools aren't meeting certain standards. But also when it comes to taxation, in the 1970s, you have tax revolts that basically want state control of taxes, state limits on taxes. Prop 13 in California is the best example of this. Um it's not clear to me what state limitations on taxes have to do with localism. That is to say a principled conservative would probably say look I want local communities to make their decisions if they want to raise their own taxes that's their business. The state should have no control over what we spend on our schools. But because local teachers unions are getting sweetheart contracts and are raising school budgets and conservatives feel like school boards suddenly are outdated and can't resist this they give up on local control and they start to turn to states to limit taxes. Likewise with curriculum, once teachers get academic freedom laws or or contract uh, provisions pushed through, and you can't just fire a teacher for no reason, or you can't ban books for no reason, suddenly conservatives want more control at the state or federal level over what is being taught in schools and, and sort of how teachers are being held accountable. And so the second half of the book basically argues both that conservatives start reaching higher and higher to state and federal government. While at the same time, they also move lower and lower with vouchers, with school choice, with homeschooling and parental opt-outs. You have individual parents. Uh, Dan Rogers has a book called The Age of Fracture, where he talks about how the conservative movement becomes more atomized, right? And it all becomes about markets and choice, individual initiative. Um, That's fine. And in some ways, you could say that's conservative, But it's clearly not the same kind of conservatism that I'm talking about at the beginning of the book, which is all community-based. It's all about democratic governance, not about consumerism, not about making a market-based choice. And so basically, and this might set up your next question, I would say starting in the 1970s, actually starting at the moment when they sort of win the right to local control, conservatives abandon it. And in fact, if you look right now, occasionally, very opportunistically, someone like Ted Cruz will talk about local control of schools. They don't really care about it anymore, though. For the vast majority, really, ever since the Bush years, they've been willing to sign on to school choice. They've been willing to sign on to government regulation of testing or funding or whatever it might be, and they don't really talk the language that they used to talk. And again, you could say that's for opportunistic or even cynical reasons. You know, They don't have to worry about busing anymore, and so they're free to talk about other things. But I see that as a major disappointment. I think the conservatives were the one voice we had defending localism. Maybe again, maybe for the wrong reasons, but they at least someone was defending it, and now it's not clear to me who is standing up for local school districts or local school boards. Certainly not liberals and conservatives. I would say very rarely. Um, at, at one point in the book, I have this line where I kind of say that we've kept all the bad parts of local control, right? We've kept the racial stratification. You still can't bus kids or money across district boundaries, but all the good parts—local buy-in, you know, showing up at the PTA meeting—we've kind of abandoned those too. So. We've got the we've got the bad stuff. And we've lost the good stuff, and I think I'm not saying it's conservatives' faults, but uh, certainly I, I'm not a fan of the current conservative moment in educational reform.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so that very much sets us up for my next question of thinking about what does this book tell us to if we're thinking about the current battles of education, or to put this another way, I think uh, in a previous interview I was talking to someone about a. a similarly uh current relevance type of book um if you were kind of telling your students or someone in the public of you know what they can take away from this history to reform their thinking Mm -hmm. about battles over common core or vouchers or homeschooling or or whichever battle you want to pick or all of them together um what does this this history tell us or how should it change our thinking
0: Well, I'll give two answers to that. The first one is actually a very personal answer. I just moved to Maryland, right, which incidentally has countywide districts. Uh, But I'm right on the border between two counties, Montgomery County, which has some of the best public schools in the country, and Prince George's County, which does not have some of the best public schools in the country. Uh, And here I am, a young, fairly affluent, at least well-educated white man, and I have a young child. And I am looking to buy a house. What do I do? Right. I I myself am wrestling with these moral questions. Do I want to uh, move to the poorest neighborhood I can find with the worst schools I can find in order to somehow improve them? On the one hand, that sounds really condescending. And on the other, of course, that seems like a threat to my own child's achievement and opportunities. But on the other hand, someone has to send their kids to those schools. Why shouldn't it be me? I mean, what what right do I have to buy my way out of poor schools? Um, these are very personal questions, and sometimes when I raise them to my students, they get very defensive. Like, oh, are you judging my parents for sending me to a good suburban school, blah, blah, blah? Uh, I am, kind of. I mean, we're all guilty. We're all complicit in this. Obviously, the way the system is set up benefits certain people and disadvantages others. And you have to be really brave or really noble to try, try to sacrifice your own kid for a principal. And I'm overstating that. I don't think it's a sacrifice to send your kid to the Prince George of schools or any, I mean, any school district. Um, but often that's the way it's framed. And when you add the fact that one's down payment on a house, you know, one's in huge investment for many middle-class families is bound up with these choices. It's not a surprise that, that parents really put a lot of stock in which schools they choose. Um, so I would hope that my book would sort of raise that question for people and make them wrestle with it in a, in a more frank way. Like, what are we really valuing? Why are we choosing one school over the other? Is this racism? Is this some boogeyman about your kid not getting into Harvard? Or are you really committed to one community over another? Why? I mean, how how do we think about that? The second answer that I would give is that – In education reform, there's actually a lot of consensus. I remember when Obama was elected, I had had lots of sort of left-leaning friends who said, oh, good, he's going to undo all the bad things that George Bush did with No Child Left Behind. And I remember at the time thinking, you poor suckers. Uh, You actually think that there's a difference between the Democratic and Republican parties when it comes to education reform. There might be slight differences. Obviously, Democrats are more amenable to teachers' unions. Republicans are more hostile to them. But on the big questions of of testing, of of federal involvement, uh, of, I would say, increasingly equal funding, there's not a lot of difference. Both parties are moving generally in the same direction, as as we've seen with the Obama presidency. So the current movement against Common Core, for instance, um, there's a lot of misinformation. A lot of conservative friends who say that Common Core is a national initiative. It's not, actually. States have to sign on voluntarily, and many states are starting to opt out of it. But I would say that the, the disagreement over Common Core, while some of it might be partisan, at least it opens up this question about what is the appropriate role of the federal government in determining curriculum. And actually, it might be a really good role. If I look at the Common Core standards and see a lot to like in them. When you look at skills learning, when you look at sort of what we're expecting of children you know, across school districts, there's a lot of really good stuff there. On the other hand, I'm, again, very, very sympathetic to people who say that on principle, the federal government does not have a right to boss around state legislatures, or one might go further and say it does not have a right to boss around local school districts. Um, maybe states can do it better. You know, if you're in Massachusetts or some state that has really active educational reform, why should you be shackled to lower standards just to accommodate Mississippi or, you know, some other southern state that might not have either the means or the desire to improve? Um, you know, there's sort of an older argument there about the laboratory of democracy, right? How localism or even state-based reform can can allow experimentation with policy that federal top-down reform can't. Whether there's merit to that, I'm not actually sure, but I'll say that at least at the moment we have a conversation going where people might say, huh, why do I support, you know, federal control or local control? And they might actually have to have those conversations. Mm-hmm.
1: So if I can kind of uh, harken back to your first answer here for a second. Um, I'm pretty sure you you don't have a definite answer to this question, but uh, if we think about sort of, we can think about the federal level, the state level, and then the local level as being three you know points where you could have a lot of educational control. And it seems to me like your first answer there could be a, a knee jerk at least or argument to be made. And I think this would probably be more a more typical liberal argument to say, okay, well that what that example says is that we should actually move up the level of control, perhaps yep. from local to state, right, so that you can even out these, these school districts between, you know, counties or in other states, you know, other sorts of lines, right? Yep. Um, so, so what's your thought on that? Do you have an idea of, like, where the ideal uh, control is? Does that <laughs> argument make sense to you? Or is that not really, um, not really the argument? I don't have kids, so I don't spend as no. ta- much time thinking about these.
0: That's very much the argument, although I'll say, number one, it's actually even more complicated than you just intimated. That is to say, with with homeschooling vouchers, we have parental control. We have site-based control, right? Principals controlling individual schools within a district. Then you have local. Often you have county. Then you have state. Then you have federal. That's six different layers. And that's not even counting unions and courts and other interest groups. Six different layers of public governance in schools each of them sort of a relic of some time gone by, but now they're all tangled. And you're right, they're all pulling in different directions. People want different things. Um, It's really confusing, really complicated. And so I don't think there's going to be a clear answer where I can just say federal control of schools is the answer. I mean, obviously that's not going to happen. It's probably not worthwhile. I would also point out that while liberals are very right in saying that, you know, unequal funding, if you have a kid growing up in Beverly Hills versus a kid growing up in East L.A., if those school districts are funded with local property taxes, you're going to have a vastly different educational experience there. Liberals are right in saying that they want to equalize that, right? Take money from the rich districts, give it to the poor, or finance it all through the state. Even then, one could ask, well, why are you going to condemn a kid living in Mississippi to a worse education than a kid who happens to be living, in, I don't know, in Tennessee? Or, you know, whatever the example might be. Um, and when we talk about busing, I often say, well, you know, you want to bus kids from the city to the, sub- or from the, city to the suburbs and vice versa, what happens if suburbanites move out further? How far are you going to bus them? Or what if you're at a city like Louisville, which is right on the border between two states? What if parents move across the state line into Ohio or Indiana? Or, you know, like, what do you do then? You can't bus kids across state lines, can you? Um, that's a little bit of a ri- ridiculous argument. I Obviously, there, there are limits on how far people can move and how what kind of effort people will make to escape school integration or whatever else it might be. But that general question, I think, is valid, which is to say, even if you did have a stronger state role in education, what about the role between states, right? If you had a stronger federal role, how how much uh, could the federal government actually do to control local schools and equalize local schools, and at what cost? I mean, to what degree would that then limit experimentation or, or cultural sensitivity or local uh, traditions in, in particular districts, right? Um, And what value are those? The value question is a really good one. I I have people, educational policy friends, who are much smarter than I am, who all usually when I bring up local control, they sort of trot out statistics. And they point out, uh, for instance, Kenneth Wong has an excellent book called The Education Mayor, where he, with qualifications, argues that we actually shouldn't have school district elections. It should all be mayorally appointed school districts. And that because more people turn out for mayoral elections, that's actually more democratic. That is to say, if you vote for – if 50 percent of people vote for mayor and only 5 percent vote for local school board, the mayoral vote is actually more representative, paradoxically. There are obvious counters to that, right? When people vote for mayor, they're not always voting about education. We're assuming that you know mayors are, are sort of a one-issue candidate, blah, blah, blah. Long goes into this. Um. My response to that, when people argue that, that that people don't show up to school board elections or people don't actually show up to PTA meetings usually, when you actually have uh, divisive issues, you'll notice that people do show up to those meetings, right? When sex ed is on the table or when creationism is on the table, people really come out in droves to local school board meetings. Um That's not a a terribly convincing argument, but I would say that sort of in principle, there is value to local democracy. Schools used to be and actually still are by far the most uh, accessible government agency, and they also eat up most people's taxes, right? Most people pay property tax at much higher rates than they do income tax or other things. And so people are forking over a huge chunk of change to these institutions, And they expect them to be responsive. They expect people to show up and talk to the school board, talk to the principal, have their voice heard. Um, Obviously, moving things to the state level is going to dampen that. It's going to diminish diminish it and probably give more power to testing companies, more power to teachers' unions, people across the ideological spectrum, but not local voters. Um, And so I would say as a matter of principle, I don't actually care how many people show up to school board election or not. I think that the fact that they have a right to show up to that election is the important thing. Um, and so by the end of the book, you'll notice, yes, clearly I'm a fan of localism, again, with all the caveats of, of racism, et cetera. But, I mean, to answer your question, if I had to put you know, my money on one of these institutions, I would still say that local school boards and local districts have an important role to play and are being unfairly marginalized in educational policy discussions.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, one last possibly um – irrelevant question um, about the kind of the present day aspect. Um, I've been reading lots of or there's been lots in the news lately about kind of parenting culture and sort of how parenting culture um, has, uh, I believe they usually perhaps have a veneer of parenting culture is out of control might be the way to put it or parenting culture has become just, you know, really the kind of the tiger mom, you know, all this kind of stuff um, in the present day. Yep. Um do you think that – I mean, I don't know if you buy into that concern, right? That tends to be in sort of the, the realm of, of journalism, not in the realm of historians at this particular moment. Um, but do you think that kind of enters into this, or, or is that an overstated change?
0: Right. Um, yeah, so there are two sides to parenting culture. You brought up the po- positive or potentially negative side of over parenting, you know, ambitious immigrants or, or upper middle class entitled kids who demand entrance into Harvard, whatever it might be. The other side of that, which of course has a long history, is the, the history of, of supposedly neglectful parents, poor parents, right? Parents who are working two jobs. Uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, you've got lots of initiatives to try to take kids away from their parents, either physically, in the case of Native American kids, send them off to boarding schools to acculturate them and and get assimilate them, get them out of their Indian culture. But to a lesser degree, with immigrant kids, with black kids, with Hispanic kids, you've got a lot of different groups where school is not reinforcing parental lessons. It's trying to counteract them, right? Um, And so I think uh, on both sides of the coin, parenting culture has always been important to educational discussions. Today, uh, I think that the media likes to make too big of a deal out of it, right? Tiger moms, like millennials, right? If you put that in the title, like everyone's going to read it and say, oh my goodness, kids these days, 20-somethings these days, oh my God. Um I would say that actually there were a lot of parallels to earlier times for better and worse, right uh, so in the nineteen teens 20s and 30s, you have a lot of uh, very upwardly mobile immigrant kids from New York City trying to get into Harvard that are being marginalized and systematically excluded, and those kids were Jews right where they were not they were not waspy enough and so Harvard came up with all kinds of shenanigans like geographical representation, and we need enough South Dakotans to come to Harvard. Uh, or they wanted a well-rounded student who was athletic and the, the notion that Jews just study and don't aren't, aren't athletes, right? They Im- implement a lot of these new admissions requirements to keep Jews out of Harvard. In the same way that today, if you look at the University of California system, uh, you've got a lot of Asian American students very rightly saying, we're being systematically excluded. We have higher SAT scores. We have higher grades. We're in all these clubs. We get in at lower rates than African American kids who are white kids do or whatever it might be. Um... If you want to chalk that up to parenting culture, these, are these I think, are very valid questions about sort of representation and about merit, right? Who deserves to get into certain institutions of higher education? Who deserves to succeed in even high school, right? When you have black students who are systematically uh, disciplined at higher rates for the same behavior, um, you've got systematic racism, the school-to-prison pipeline, et cetera. Uh, I don't think these questions are outdated. I mean, I think these are, these are very much front and center I don't have answers to them, but I, I would say that the notion that schools – I mean, there's this bigger debate about schools, about whether they're engines of equality, which, of course, is what we like them to be. It shouldn't matter who your parents are. If you show up, work hard, and get good grades, you should be able to be president because of our public school system. And on the other hand, we know that schools don't do that. What they actually do is they sort kids basically according to their parents' race or income, right? They, they, they stigmatize kids. They mentally – kill kids uh, and disaffect them from learning, which one of those is the reality of schools or which way do they lean? Should Are they leaning on the good side where we should support them and, and muddle through? Or are they leaning on the bad side where we should sort of tear them down because they're denying kids opportunities? I don't know. I mean, I've been out in lots of schools uh, where I see an increasingly diverse student body. Uh, in some cases, I actually do see more economic integration of middle class kids with poorer kids. I think that's all good, and I think it does lend itself to equality and equal educational opportunity. Um, whether it's enough or what sort of – how that will translate 20 years down the road, I'm not sure. Um, but to say that parenting culture is somehow a new thing or that you know there, there are some kids whose parents push them maybe too hard and they're, they're not well-adjusted. Uh, that's an older conversation which I think smacks of perhaps racism or, or cultural sort of bigotry on the one hand and also of cultural privilege on the other, where we assume that if you don't push your kids hard, it's because you're backward or you're lazy or, you know, whatever, when in fact there are probably other systematic reasons why you can't give them the benefits that, that you should.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so I also wanted to ask you a little bit about process, which doesn't kind of flow uh, nicely into our conversation, but if we can just kind of step to the side for a second. Um, One of the things that you point out in your book, and I think is very true. I remember having a conversation, a graduate seminar about this sort of thing, that it's hard to do research on rural America, right? And there's a reason uh, both probably just the kind of personality bias of the majority of historians and academics more generally um, that we have a lot of urban histories compared to rural histories and, but there's also a, an actual kind of practical reason for that. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your research and kind of how you did your research and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the challenges and joys of that, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And I should say history of education, even more than other aspects of American history, is totally guilty of having okay. urban bias. Um, we, ever since the 1970s, when when David Tyack released the One Best System, basically the, the sort of go-to move of a historian of education is to pick a city and study the schools there, right, since the turn of the 20th century. The reasons for that, the bias that you're talking about, is the fact that those places have central repositories. You know, the school boards keep their records. You can go see – go to the, whatever the big public library is, and they'll definitely have records of municipal zoning boards and whatever else it is. Rural communities are less likely to have those records, or even if they do, you're less likely to know if there's something valuable there, right? Yes, I suppose I could visit every single town and comb through their school district records, but it would be really hard to find anything that way. And so what I basically did is I would either start with newspapers or I would start with court decisions, um, because you know that there's something there, right? There's fire breaking out there. And the court decisions are very helpful because they often, in the syllabus, they'll go through and talk about what happened. They'll talk about the case. And once you've got that, you can then go back and look at local records in that particular town and sort of flesh out the details, flesh out the the meaning of of that particular case. Um, But, yeah, in the introduction, I point out that my book in some ways is more extensive than it is intensive, right? A lot of the the cases that I study, they flit into the, the newspaper for a week and then they flit out again. And there's no more lasting record that I can use. Um, I was blessed to be at Wisconsin when I was doing this research because the Wisconsin Historical Society has excellent collections, both for that state and nationally, um, where, I, you know, I could look at the work of rural sociologists. I could look at the work of journalists. I could look at other people who had already done a lot of legwork for me, and I could just repackage their work or sort of amalgamate their work and, and make broader claims about rural America. Um That's why universities often can be a helpful window into these broader uh, cultures, rural cultures, especially uh, land-grant universities. Um, But generally, yeah, it's it's really uh, understandable why why historians are are drawn to cities because it's much easier to do that research and you don't have to rely on thinner sources across a much broader area.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, we have taken a lot of your time. So we traditionally – Um, ask you what you're working on now. I know you just started a new job, so you're probably working on that, but um, what's your next project? Uh,
0: My next project is a beautiful, uh, dare I say, gothic history of school vandalism, the destruction of school property. Um, I'm taking a lot of different angles on it, but basically, uh, I see the destruction of school property as a good way of reclaiming children's voices. Um, A lot of times when we talk about where historians find records, obviously kids don't leave records, or very rarely do they leave meaningful records in their own voice. Maybe if we look at a few desks that have been scratched up, maybe if we look at a little bit of spray paint, maybe if we look at decapitated statues, that can tell us something about how kids experience school. And uh, moreover, I would point out that when I say school vandalism, people immediately think about juvenile delinquency. Uh, it's not only kids that wreck school property. In fact, oftentimes I would say it's adults that wreck school property uh, for various reasons of political dissatisfaction. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be a, a look at the destruction of schools from the colonial era up through the present and kind of a, a long durée kind of history of why we destroy schools and what, what, what that says about the human condition or, or the condition inside of, of schools.
1: All right that sounds great it'll We're be gonna... love-
0: it'll be dark it'll be lovely it's gonna be fun
1: yeah that so it sounds like that'll be a challenge to research as well possibly but yeah sounds like fun all right well, thank you so much for joining us.
0: thank you.